0: All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. Today I have on uh, Brendan the Cruz. Uh, did I say your name right, Brendan? Did my friend you nailed it? Awesome. So Brendan is a model, a coach. Uh, has his hands in a lot of things. And if you check out his Instagram, he has a phenomenal physique, like uh, bordering on. Uh, what's what's it called? Um, not Shark Tank. <laughs> what's the name? James Shark. Oh Lord! Don't Gym compare Sh- me to those guys. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean it's um, you know, and people would think like, okay, so what is this guy gonna talk about? Like, yeah, you gotta work hard and eat your protein, but. No, guys like I've listened to a couple of podcasts that he has appeared on and he has a lot of great insights about not just nutrition and training and all those things but uh, diet psychology and um, a lot of the things that not that many people talk about so I think this will be a very insightful podcast and uh, yeah Brandon thank you for joining me.
1: Absolutely, Abel. I've been looking forward to this, so I appreciate you having me on.
0: Awesome. So uh, yeah, just a little bit about your background. Um, don't have to go back to like all the very beginnings, but like just how do you get into fitness? Um, how long have you been doing this? And um, yeah, how since when is this an actual career job sort of thing for you?
1: Okay, so I'll start broad base and then I'll go back a little bit. So initially, you know, right now I am an online nutrition coach. I am the national sales director of a New York-based supplement company called Farm, and I'm also uh, a national level men's physique competitor, as well as an internationally published fitness model. But way before any of this stuff happened, uh, I was a young kid that um, honestly was very active as as a younger kid, very involved in sports, and I kind of gravitated towards endurance sports. And the reason I'm going back into this, despite it not having to do with weight training, is the reason that I'm so passionate about nutrition, diet psychology, training. Um, making a sustainable lifestyle out of what I do is because it came from a place that I was doing things that were very unsustainable. So early in my life, I got very uh, involved in endurance athletics. I was an endurance runner, you know, cross country and track. And then I also did martial arts competitively. So if you think about those two sports, those are very weight restricted sports. So even early, early on in, in my life, I was always looking at a scale. I was you know 8 9 years old counting calories you know at that point we didn't have my fitness pal we didn't have fit day planner um, i was doing it with a uh, calorie counting book so i was going you know and i was looking at the labels of things and i was writing it down and i was already neurotic at 8 or 9 years old now that's a great foundation for some people but honestly it developed into an eating disorder for myself and it was something that i battled over the course of four to five years and it wasn't until i got an injury and ended up in a rehabilitation center for an injury that I started realizing that these came, the injuries that I had sustained came from multiple aspects. It came from overtraining. It came from underfueling. It came from being in what's considered relative energy deficiency. So essentially I was burning all these calories, but I was under eating because I had a weight restriction. I was always so conscious of that. At that point, it kind of you know, turned a, a page in my life. I was a freshman in high school. I was 14 years old. I was massively underweight. And now I'm trying to rehabilitate my body and myself and it, I turned to nutrition to do so. So I was very fortunate. I was in a, a rehab clinic that had both a physical therapist and a chiropractor. One was a power lifter and one was a bodybuilder. So not only did they help me from the rehab perspective, but they also encouraged me to weight train and they taught me how to weight train. And they also taught me the fundamentals of nutrition and at that point. I just wanted to feel better. I wanted to be a normal kid. I wanted to get back into athletics because I was missing it for for almost a year period of time. So I got really into um, into nutrition and into looking at food as a way to fuel my performance, my recovery, my performance, rather than looking at food as something I had to restrict in order to make this weight class. So it completely changed my life. And that's why I always say, you know, the reason I'm able to be a good coach, and I think that could be said about a lot of people in the industry is that we did this initially to fix ourselves so now we were able to help other people avoid the mistakes that we ourselves made and that's really my objective in all aspects of life so now we we speed up the you know 15 years at this point um, I've been doing this for quite a long time, but when I first got into things, I was very, I, I say I was fortunate and, and unfortunate in different aspects. So fortunate in the fact that, you know, I, I was around some early mentors that really knew what they were doing. They pushed me in the right direction. But at that point, this there was no social media. There was no, uh, you know, there's very few. Outsources or resources for information, but luckily I, I stumbled ap- upon a few good resources. Guys like Lyle McDonald, guys like Alan Aragon, Lane Norton. This is in the early days of bodybuilding.com in the forums, so I got introduced and uh, you know exposed to the evidence-based you know movement very early on. So I was fortunate that I was kind of already a science-minded guy. I was very intelligent in school, so I kind of gravitated towards wanting to know the reasons behind why things worked. I wanted to know mechanisms of action. I didn't want to just, you know, do something and get a result. I wanted to understand why I was getting the result that I was. So that's really fueled me my entire life. And it's pushed me in an aspect where I've always wanted to educate myself and learn more and then put those things that I'm learning into practice. So really my whole, you know, my whole career, I've been in some industry for going on 13 years. I've been coaching since 2013. So we're already eight years into that. And my whole thing is blending. What I've learned in the trenches, you know, I've competed 14 times over the years. I've been on the national, you know, NPC level stage. I've brought, you know, IFBB pros onto the pro stage. I have current guys on my roster right now that have been at the Olympia level. So I've I've been in the trenches, both myself and with my athletes. So I'm blending that anecdotal experience, but I also have studied extensively and done tons of mentorships uh, under you know PhDs and, and clinicians and researchers, where I've learned what the evidence states, and that gives me a foundation to work from and combine it with my experience and what I see with myself and my clients to try to get the most efficient and effective methods, but in a sustainable manner, because I've done things, like I said, you know, I, a lot of times we're trying to fix ourselves and I've done things the wrong way. I've had the bro, you know, bodybuilding coaches of the early, you know, you know coaching wasn't that prominent 10 years ago when I first got into competing. So, you know, I did, a, I made a lot of mistakes and I was given the wrong advices. And so I just try to mitigate that and really help people avoid the mistakes that I made.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, a couple of things you mentioned there that I want to follow up on. Um, one thing is... Um, You mentioned that you were fortunate in that you didn't come up in the social media era or I I think that's what you said. uh, And that kind of just got me thinking about like who like what is sort of the luckiest start and what's the unluckiest start that you can have as someone who just starts out in fitness. I think the unluckiest one is either the person who like gets into like only the social media fitfluencer kind of scene and looks at those guys and uh, immediately develops, I I don't know, like body image issues just by comparing him or herself to these people. So either that person or maybe someone who starts following some complete charlatan bullshit artists with, you know, horrible recommendations. So like that would be another very unfortunate person. And then in terms of who is the luckiest one, I think the luckiest you can get is, let's say, your first day in the gym, first day trying to do something with your nutrition and then you get coached immediately by a highly competent person. So I guess that would be the luckiest scenario, but that basically never happens and it's not very realistic in most cases. But then I'm also thinking about some of these guys like Eric Helms. Um, When I hear him talk about his early, early days in bodybuilding, Yeah, it's a lot of silly things that we wouldn't recommend now, like crazy dreamer bulks, putting on a ton of weight, like you were always pushing towards something extreme, like you were not overthinking, overanalyzing anything, like bulking was like just complete, like fuck all, tons of food, no attention to any kind of detail, you did that for months and months on end. And it's like it's almost like the ignorance is bliss sort of scenario. So in a way, I I wish I at least went through some of that because I never had that. Like I was I was almost like too smart from the get go to know that that's not a good idea. I did follow some charlatans though. So
1: yeah, no, absolutely. So like I said, there was unfortunate parts of it. So for instance, I was in the magazine era. So there was a lot of times initially when I was coming up. You know, the first time that you know after one of my um, rehab treatments I you know the guys that I was working with the PT and the chiropractor said listen just go out to the newsstand and pick up you know flex magazine or muscle and fitness and at that point we know that first of all the guys that were in the magazine you know, that were saying that they were, you know, penning these articles. They weren't writing them. There were editors behind them and it was ghostwritten articles, but it was the 25 sets, you know, of chess every week and it was the bro splits and the things of that sort. So I did get lost in that initially, but think about it, I'm 13 or 14 years old. So, you know, if anything, it's best off to have made those early mistakes early on, but also it was, at the, the point we're talking 050607 that boards and forums were becoming more prominent and there were people that had educations behind them that were starting to put out, you know, free information free resources so bodybuilding.com was. Uh, a resource that I went to. Now, we look back at it now and it's like, you know, bodybuilding.com no one goes to. But at that time, it was a breeding ground. We had Father Flex, we had Alberto Nunez, and we had Eric on there. And, you know, we would have Dr. Scott Stevenson on other boards. So I was exposed to these guys early on. And it was just, you really had to be very selective about who you were and I believe this in all aspects of life, you have to be extremely selective of who you surround yourself with. And they say you're the average of the five people you surround yourself with most, but I take that to a different context, whether we're in you know pre-COVID or in you know COVID circumstances now, you are the average of the five influences you surround yourself with. So that could be podcasts, that could be media, you know, social media accounts, that could be you know the media that you consume from your television. You know, anything that you're putting in your ears and you're surrounding yourself with those become your your surroundings and become your influences. So it's being very selective. And I was fortunate that I was able to differentiate between, you know, who were in a better category. I'm not going to say that I didn't follow charlatans or zealots or any of those type of people, but I kind of saw that certain people you know, aligned with one another. You would see Eric and Alberto on the boards together. At that time, Lyle got along with more people than he does now. You know, so there was a lot of agreement. So they say, I've heard Greg Knuckles say this, and it's very hard when there's two intelligent people arguing for someone that's less intelligent or less knowledgeable in a, in a subject to, to realize and to differentiate who is more intelligent or who is more right in their thoughts and their concepts, you know, between the two. But when there's multiple people that you think of as a resource of, accurate and applicable information saying all about all the same things. So at that point, 06, 07, 08, they're talking about energy balance. They're talking about the the law of thermodynamics. Now, mind you, at that same time, we do have people, zealots in the industry, you know, especially back then that said calories don't matter, you know, go on keto because you can eat as much fat as you want and you won't get fat, you know, eat fat to burn fat. And so I'm looking at that as a young kid. And I'm saying, all right, well, a lot of the guys I look up to that do it and they're in the trenches are saying, you know, calories do matter count your macros you know, um, look towards energy balance. If you want to lose fat, you have to be in a deficit. So push me in the right direction. And it's not that all of them were right, because even if you spoke to someone as educated as Eric, you know, he'd admit that he made mistakes at that point in his career, because he was early on as well, but there were more times right than they were wrong. Whereas now, you know, I consider myself fortunate because there was less voices in in the ether. Now you go on social media and like you were saying before, you know, someone might be in the unfortunate situation that they get on social media and they look at someone based on their physique and they say, wow, that guy's, you know, he's got a phenomenal physique and I'm going to follow exactly what he does. And he follows these outrageous training programs and he buys into their eBooks and he he gives into, you know, he subjects himself to all the information that this person that has very little applicable knowledge and information just because the guy looks the part. And that's always something that I've tried to differentiate. You know, when you're doing an intro, you're saying I have a very good physique and, and this, that, and the other. And I, I very much appreciate that. But my whole goal in in this industry and in what I do and in terms of content creation has always been to educate people. And I'm always making sure, yes, I'm going to bait you in with a a great picture, you know, a modeling picture, whatever it may be. But I'm going to educate you. And I I spend so much time answering hundreds of messages a day just trying to get um, quality information out there. And there's been many times that over the years I've had to, you know, go back and say, listen, what I believe that one time. It's not correct now. And I'm going to make an updated post based on the research or, you know, I'm, I'm constantly sharing research reviews that I do myself and that I look into the research and I dive deep into it because I know that people look at, to someone that has a good physique and they say, all right, well, that person must know what they're doing, but more times than not, they don't. So I want to be, you know, someone that's a beacon of light in this industry where I'm able to put a you know, put out quality information that people look to and trust, but also I'm in the trenches and I'm applying it to myself and to my athletes. And I'm making sure that they align, you know, the information that I'm putting out aligns with the results that I'm getting.
0: Yeah. Since, uh, you just mentioned, um, at the end about, uh, the, idea behind putting out content, I've heard you discuss this elsewhere, but I'm just curious, this is kind of a self-serving question, but do you have any kind of, um, system for uh, kind of rotating through different types of posts for Instagram. Like, do you have a list or do you like batch write them or batch make them at one time? Or maybe someone helps you with that? Because I very much like my posts, even when it's about a seemingly generic topic, like, I don't know, fat loss, controlling calories, whatever. They always come in a moment of inspiration, like uh, something happened the day before, like a client interaction, or maybe I am cutting at the moment and I'm coming to these realizations myself, so I feel inspired to make that post. But I guess uh, you cannot feel inspired every day, all the time, for years straight about these things. And as you know, a lot of these things do become repetitive over time. So do you have any kind of system for that?
1: Absolutely. So this is something that Dave McConey and I actually spoke about. So I have a, I don't want to say a system, but I have a theme that I go through just to keep myself organized and also to make sure that my audience and my following knows that they're always going to receive content from me. So in 2017, one of my, you know, quote unquote New Year's resolutions, not that I really believe in that philosophy, but just for the New Year, one of the the um, testaments that I made to myself was I was going to put out an educational post every single day and not miss one. So since 2017, I have not missed one day of posting, and that has not been just to build, you know, not just to cater to the algorithm, but it was just something for myself. I said, listen, if I'm learning stuff, the best way to to learn and reinforce what I'm learning is to teach others, and that's I truly believe that. So every day I would put out an educational post, and initially it was it was themed, and I would do them in advance. So the theme essentially went that I would put out a quote post then i would put out a training post and then i would put out a nutrition post and that would be the three lineup that i would have in the instagram algorithm and through time it's it's really evolved because as I've done more and more podcasts over the years, as I've done more posts and, and interacted interacting with more people, and also I, I actually did a sum total the other day of how many clients I've worked with over the last eight years, and I'm almost at a thousand, like a few away. So you know, for me, I'm very detail oriented in my coaching. So to have coached a thousand people, that's really hands on. It's not. I'm not that coach that has a hundred clients or fifty clients. You know, rotating through on my roster. I'm very detail oriented. So so work with a thousand people. It's been a thousand people that I've genuinely been hands on with, and. And so throughout that time, I'm receiving dozens of questions, whether it be through my own clientele and their check-ins, through emails, um, whether it be on my own podcast that I, I host, or it be through Instagram. So now my, my, podca- or my content is really catered towards the questions that I receive on a daily basis. So often when I'm on a podcast, I'll tell people, listen, if you have a question, just you know feel free to DM me. But if I see that multiple people are DMing me the same type of question and it's kind of in-depth. I'll do a series on them and I'll let them know, listen, I'm going to go in depth. I wouldn't be able to you know, give you the type of answer that I would want to just due to lack of time, but also this is a great question. So I want to, you know, approach this and have more people than just yourself, you know, get the value from the answer that I'm going to provide. So there's been many times that I've done series done like insulin sensitivity series, or for instance, I track blood glucose with all my, my clients. And I've had so many people over the years DM me about that. So I've done, you know, six, you know, Six posts series on just tracking blood glucose and what to look for and what the benefits are and, you know, the, um, you know, biofeedback and things of that sort. So really at this point, it's, it's really, um, It's an active process where I'm constantly just responding to what people are asking of me or what I see. And the one thing I do avoid, actually, which is funny, a lot of people go with these trends, is that a lot of times you'll see that if someone that's prominent in the evidence-based community posts on something, say Lane posts on something or Jackson Pios posts on something, everyone else jumps on it. So if it's diet breaks, for instance, you know, I do this thing every single day, I have a commitment to myself that I'll at least spend two hours a day in some educational facet. So it could be through podcasts. Uh, Most of the time it's through online seminars that I I take. Um, So two hours every day, I at least do one hour in the morning, first thing upon waking, where I'll listen to a seminar, I'll do notes. It's very active for me. So I'm making sure that I'm dialed in, my phone's away. There's nothing else going on, just me, my computer and my notes. Um, Just really getting active education because I really believe that's a key component towards growth. Because if I just stayed at the same knowledge level that I was at years ago, I would have never progressed myself or other people that I work with. So I always want to be giving back. And I really do believe in the value of education. So For instance, when the diet break um, data just recently broke from Jackson, you know, I was obviously adamant about reading that. I was reading, you know, Meadow actually released it before Jackson did. So I was reading his recap on it. I was reading Jackson's actual paper. And then all of a sudden, you know, I had all this data that I was looking at and I was writing a post. So I had things ready in advance, but all of a sudden Lane posted on it and other people within the community. I said, listen, why, it, this is just gonna be a copycat thing. So I actually specifically don't hit on a lot of topics that people that I know have bigger followings or that are gonna do it better justice than I could are hitting on because they're, that's a resource that I could point someone else out to. So if I had a client that asked me about diet breaks, I could say, look, I'm gonna refer you over to the video that Lane did on this, or I'm gonna refer you over to Jackson, or I'm gonna refer you over to the video that Eric Helms did on the mass um, subscription site. Whereas, if they're asking me other questions that these individuals haven't covered i could cover it in depth and really serve them in a different aspect so that's really how i look at content i try to differentiate myself from other people because i don't want to just be saying something that everyone else is saying just in a different way you know they say professional steal and amateurs you know borrow and and for me i understand that whole concept we're all getting information from very much the same resources and just kind of putting it in our own words but i feel that if i just redundantly you know do the same things that other people within the community do it's not really giving any differentiated value to the people that are you know absorbing my content because if they're following me they're most likely following the people that i'm following so for instance if you hit on a topic and i saw it and i interacted with your post i probably wouldn't you know cover that for even if i had a post already created i wouldn't cover that for months you know later i would make sure i'm hitting on something else because I know my audience is like-minded individuals, so they're gonna see your content. They're gonna see Dave McConey's content. And so why hit on the same topics unless it's like an interactive thing where we're both going back and forth on our philosophies or our approaches and it's it's more of um like in a group type of, of scenario.
0: Yeah, yeah. Definitely questions that you receive regularly are a good kind of guiding guiding tool there i guess i should just make a, a post every single day about cut or bulk and then that will be that will be my instagram game from now on <laughs> i mean
1: with, the, with how often we get those type of questions it can be covered every day and people would still not you know understand where we're coming from
0: oh yeah oh yeah for sure uh speaking of cutting and bulking so um I wanted to pick your brain today about uh, s- staying lean. Basically, that's the theme, uh, as it often was on my podcast recently. So, um, on your pictures, you look uh, super, super lean. So, for example, the one that you uploaded uh, a day ago, so which is yesterday, um, is that like a good representation of how you look year-round, more or less, or? Is is that picture like slightly leaner, slightly fatter? Like how how should we picture you like year round?
1: No, year round I would say I stayed between eight and ten percent body fat. So the picture that you're referring to, that was uh in a in a fat loss phase. So no, that wasn't that wasn't a recently done photo um i have in years in the past stayed very very low body fat percentage and we could speak on that you know there was a period of time that i was a true six to you know six to seven percent um and even lower if i did like a dexa measurement or a bia i'd be you know half of that obviously as you know but that's not so accurate but um no it's that's not where i'm staying year round but i stay fairly lean within five to ten pounds of of shooting distance of a a photo shoot at all times and that's just a lifestyle that i live it's something that I've, you know, we can speak in depth. You know, I have some points or principles that I'll go over with you as to how I do that. But that type of leanness would be the unsustainable type. So, you know, right now that post was made on, um, for the audience to know it was on Thursday, uh, April 15th. So if you're looking back, uh, that that's a very low level of body fat,
0: you know, that wouldn't be something that I would sustain year round. So you, you are maintaining between eight and 10% year round, and you've been doing that for, for how long roughly? Yeah. So I've been, I have
1: not gone, I don't wanna say haven't gone above 10%, but I haven't been above 10% for a substantial period of time since about 2015. So it's been six years that I've been living this sort of lifestyle. And it's obviously, it's differentiated over years based on my career what phase of my career i was in my activity levels uh, my travel schedule because previous to COVID, i did travel between 60 and seventy-five thousand miles a year for my my daytime career as a national sales director uh, but there was a period between 2015 and 2018 that i was shooting every single weekend for the most part i was doing up to 40 shoots a year so we're, we're averaging you know almost one a week and i was staying right between that six to seven percent body fat all year so i have Done that. And I've seen the detriments to my performance, to my energy levels, to my libido from doing that. And now I've just settled into, and I don't want to say it's a body fat settling range or anything, but I've settled into a lifestyle that allows me to keep between 10 to 12 or 8 to 12 or 8 to 10% body fat rather uh, year round. And it's not something that's difficult for me, but it's more so because of the habits and the daily disciplines that I have.
0: Right. Okay. So, uh, so holy shit. (laughs) So since 2015, eight to 10, and then before that you had a period when it was even leaner. So like, when was the last time that you saw like anything over 10% body fat uh, on yourself as kind of like a walk around physique?
1: I would say uh, 2014 or 2015. So I started competing in 2014. Uh, Since that time, I've done 14 shows. And so I competed actively uh, for five years up until 2019. Last year I took off obviously because I live in the Northeast so I, I reside in both New York and New Jersey. Uh, All shows were pretty much canceled for the year and I was more focused on clients. And this year I've done the same where I've just been more focused on my clients that are competing. And I'm kind of more in a business building aspect of my life at this point that the stage isn't calling to me. You know, I've kind of been there, done that, had great experiences, but every year I would do multiple shows. So I would diet down to extremely low levels of body fat. I would reverse diet and then I would stay right in that, you know, six to eight, you know, eight to 10% body fat range. And it was pretty sustainable for me. Like I said, I did do a period of time where I was six to 7%. I was able to sustain that for a long period of time, but the practices that I had to implement to achieve that were not sustainable for where I was at in life at that point. And I realized that I said, listen, I have to kind of change gears and Reapproach this in a different aspect. And that's where I'm at now where I've stayed years within that eight to 10% body fat where I'm lean. I look, I look good and I feel comfortable and I'm healthy. My blood markers are great. Um, so I'm tracking things both subjectively in terms of the mirror, my look, you know, how I look in the gym, as well as how I look in clothes, how my clothes feel, but also objectively. So scale weight, um, yeah, I'm looking at, Blood pressure, blood glucose measurements, my resting heart rate, you know, aerobic capacity, my performance in the gym with, with lifts and training. So I have a multitude of things that I'm kind of tracking this. That if I see that, you know, say performance is dipping down, libido's, you know, crashing, I know that I'm in too lean of a state. And that's where I was feeling. And that's where I was at when I was maintaining that six to 7% body fat for a long period of time. But like I said, I was modeling. Every weekend, for the most part, I was doing three to four shows a year, so it was kind of just like you know, for every you know every give there's a gotcha, you know what I mean? So for every you know there's the cost we all have to pay for the goals that we have, and like I said, right now that's not the phase of life that I'm in, and that's not my goals. So eight to ten percent body fat is something that for me is sustainable, and I'm gonna go in depth with you on how I do that because I, I'm gonna make this very transparent and clear. That is not a sustainable level of body fat for most people. And the reason it isn't for most people is that they don't have the habits in place and, and maybe they don't want to, to be able to sustain that level of body fat. However, if they were to follow similar principles to me, I've I found with multiple clients of mine, I mean, dozens of clients of mine over the years that they've been able to sustain a much lower percent body fat level than they were previous. And I want to make this very clear, despite having been this lean since 2015, I'm not, you know, a naturally lean individual. So like I said, I struggled with an eating disorder early on, but that came from being an overweight kid. So the reason I was so restrictive in trying to lose weight was I was not fitting into the weight categories that were within my age bracket at that time early on in life, both for for especially competitive martial arts, because there was very distinct weight caps, but also for running, I was always, you know, my coach would always say like the huskier kid on the team or the chubby kid on the team and would always tell me, listen, this is slowing down your running performance and capacity. So I kind of went to these different, you know, extremes of, of the, the metric. And another thing is Dave and I have spoken off off air about, you know, he, he had made a comment that I must have a great metabolism or, you know, I must just be genetically predisposed to being lean. And that's not the case. A lot of people have this misconception about metabolism or more. So when they say metabolism, what they mean is metabolic rate. And actually when you're heavier, you have a higher resting metabolic rate because you have both more lean mass as well as fat mass, which also burns calories. So a lot of times people see someone that's lean, that's light and lean. And they say, Oh, he must have a great metabolism actually no first of all if he's dieting he's suffering from metabolic you know diet induced metabolic adaptations which have lowered his resting metabolic rate as well as well as all the other aspects of you know his total daily energy expenditure including meat including exercise activity thermogenesis And thermic effective feeding because he's eating less, but also staying lighter than I did years ago. For instance, when I was in college, I was thick. I was 20 plus percent body fat all throughout college when I did those heavier bulks and I was really trying to put on muscle mass, but I was 250 pounds. So I was eating, you know, in a disproportionate amount of calories compared to what I eat now. However, you know that was kind of what i would say was my settling point at that time and it's taken years to get to this point so i've really learned in the process it's not about being genetically predisposed to being lean it's that i have all these lifestyle habits in place that allow me to stay here and but i'm sure if i was to you know and i'll be honest if i was to disregard all these principles and all these you know bright line boundaries that i have i would not be able to sustain this leanness all year round
0: yeah actually so this is uh, one thing that maybe we should uh clear up uh, before we continue, because I'm sure that at this point, a lot of comments will start flying in saying like, okay, so he hasn't been anything fatter than 10% since 2015, and then even maintained leaner body fat than that. So he must have great genetics for that. And um, I mean, the anecdote that you were an overweight kid cancels that out somewhat, but at at the same time, I, I would say that um, your comment that you made after that is something that's very useful, I think, for people to hear is that, look, 8 to 10% body fat is very lean, like make no mistake, like a lot of people, even with all the right systems and right habits, will still find things that are just not sustainable about that lifestyle that, that is required to maintain that level of leanness so but even if that's the case like you said with the right habits right systems and the right mindset you can be leaner than what you could maintain previously so for you it might not be 8 to 10 it might be 10 to 12 or it might be 12 to 15 and 15 percent, as you know contrary to what a, a lot of people think actually still looks good on a muscular man so um that's just something important to clarify. So, so yeah, man, um, let's dig into it. How, how do you do it? So I don't even know. Do you have anything in mind that you want to address first, or should I just shoot my question? Hey, guys, just a brief interruption. If you like my content, value my opinion, and find my methods for getting and staying lean, and building muscle intriguing, then I'm just letting you know that I do have a comprehensive 100% individualized online coaching service. If you'd like to have me in your corner and use my best methods to achieve your fitness goals, then check out the show description for more information about how you can most easily reach me and apply. I will follow up with you and you and I together will determine if slash exactly how I can best help you to reach your goals. Whether it's my one-on-one or group coaching service, we will find a system that is the best fit for you. All right, that's it. Let's continue with the show.
1: So I I actually listed out just so I, I had some clear thought on the four principles that I found the most effective to stay lean leaner year round. And these are the things that I've implemented since 2015. And I've obviously modulated and titrated them and tried different types of approaches throughout the years. But these are the four key principles that I always go back to and have had success with both myself. And I don't want to just speak on myself because a personal anecdote means really nothing to anyone in your audience. But the fact that I've had hundreds of competitors and non-competitors, you know, lifestyle clients, take on very similar ideologies that I've put within their programming and had success shows that, you know, it's not just a genetic thing. It's not just a, you know, a personal thing. It's not just a inter individual thing for myself, but it's also, these are things that anyone in your audience and anyone listening to this today can implement. So the first thing I want to hit on, and I feel like this has been one of the most important things that I've integrated and I will explain as to why later is a higher energy flux lifestyle. So often, you know, when we're, we we think about the concept of dieting, we hear people say that in order to get lean, you need to eat less and move more. And although that method can work initially to lose body fat and to get lean, it isn't a sustainable one over the long term. So this is due to the fact that the amount of calories we take in affects the amount of calories we expend out, which a lot of con- individuals don't consider. So, for instance. I see like a lot of people on social media or you know on YouTube and they'll treat the concept of calories in and calories out as these two independent variables when in reality calories in and calories out are not two independent variables meaning we can't change one without impacting the other both of these variables are innately tied to one another so as you lower your intake in terms of calories you lower your output in terms of energy expenditure so this is where I found maintaining a higher state of energy flux to be really effective as it essentially allows me to eat more so I'm more fueled and, and I'm in a better state, but it's only due to the fact that I'm moving more. So I just want to, you know, I'm going to break down for your audience. I'm sure you've gone over this, but the concept of energy flux, because a lot of times when I say that, you know, there's so many different concepts for this. People will call it neat. People will call it G flux and there's all these different concepts, but energy flux is essentially our energy turnover. So this includes the amount of calories we consume as well as how many calories we expend through activity. So in my case, what I'm doing is. I'm making sure that I'm well-fueled in terms of my nutrition, and I'm also able to do that by sustaining and, and maintaining a high level of NEAT, which ranges for me on average 15,000 steps a day, and then upwards of 20, depending on what you know phase of my training I'm in, what season it is, um, my scheduling, and also what goals I have for that phase. So for instance, if I'm in a fat loss focus phase where I'm dialing in for photo shoots or just trying to tighten things up, I might titrate that, that NEAT count up a little bit, that step count up. But if not, if I'm Quote unquote maintaining i'll stay at least at that 15,000 steps per day now with that being said a lot of people hear that number and they say you know that that's a huge amount and it is it's, it's a lot of activity but it also allows me to maintain a much higher level of maintenance calories than i would otherwise and the benefit to that is that i'm able to make sure that i'm sustained and fueled for training so now i'm having better training sessions, I'm more active throughout the day. I have better energy levels. Whereas if you know the biggest issue that I see with people trying to stay lean year round is that they think they need to be in a caloric deficit at all times. And we know with caloric deficits and with dieting in general, there's a lot of metabolic adaptations which downregulate energy expenditure. And not only do they downregulate the amount of calories you're burning or, or putting out, but they're also downregulating hormonal, you know, systems. They're downregulating, you know, thyroid, t- testosterone, insulin, they're increasing cortisol levels. You know, they're also, you know, having a huge, you know, impact on your energy levels, your cognitive abilities, your libido. So all these things get downregulated, which cause you to feel shitty. So, you know, one of the, you know, the two biggest reasons that people fail in diets, you know, other than lack of consistency and adherence is due to hunger and is due to, you know, lack of energy. So I'm able to mitigate some of that by having a higher energy flux lifestyle because that allows me to eat more. So when people, you know, when I interact with clients about this and they ask me, well, how do you maintain that amount of steps? Or I'm constantly, you know, posting, you know, I I use an aura ring and I also use a Fitbit. You know, I'll I'll post my stats for the week and they'll see I'm averaging between 15 and 20,000 steps. For me that's done pretty easily and that's because i've integrated habits into my lifestyle so i'm not doing excessive amounts of cardio but i do do fasted cardio every single day and the reason you know there's no difference between fasted and fed cardio you know the fuel substrate usage is different but in a 24-hour scenario you know brad schoenfeld and alan aragon have showed you will burn the same amount of calories and it, it all equals out but the reason i do it fasted is because a that's part of my morning routine. So it's something I get outside, I get some sun exposure, I set up my circadian rhythm, and it's something that's really easy for me to implement. And it's like, it's a bookend routine. So it's the first thing I do upon waking in the morning. So I get some steps in there. I might get two to 3,000 steps right then and there. And then I'm on my feet most of the day. So if I'm answering phone calls, if I'm doing client check-ins, I just make sure that I'm active. And then also, I'll make sure that instead of sitting in between sets at the gym, I'll walk around the gym. I'll do a lap in between sets instead of just sitting down like a lot of people do. Because a lot of people think that, you know, they have this misconception that weight training burns a lot of calories, which it doesn't. Because if you think about it, if you're to take the average hypertrophy workout, you're maybe your set lasts 40 or 50 seconds, but then you're resting two to three minutes. And what a lot of people do is they sit there on their phone. So they're not, it's it's very um disjointed amount of actual physical activity. So I just take a lap around the gym. And then also what i do is i do post-meal walks so after most of my meals especially heavy carb meals i'm um doing a 10 minute walk after and that's actually been shown to be twice as effective as metformin which is the number one prescribed type 2 diabetic medication for glycemic control so with that i'm increasing insulin sensitivity i'm increasing nutrient partitioning i'm also upregulating regulating glute 4 translocation so that more of that glucose goes into the muscle cell and glute 4 translocation is actually independent uh, insulin independent so it doesn't need insulin to shuttle those those carbohydrates into the muscle so i'm, I'm seeing all these benefits and also, what people don't understand is that physical activity is is great in general for health, for staying lean. But a lot of people look at you know they'll look at it in isolation. They'll say, "Well, exercise doesn't work for losing fat." And, and they're somewhat right. For just from a, a fat perspective, fat burning perspective, exercise isn't the most effective approach. It has been shown time after time in, in clinical studies and random randomized control studies that putting yourself into a caloric deficit and doing most of the manipulations through nutrition for fat loss is more effective than just exercise interventions in and of itself. However, in the weight maintenance process, which is essentially what I'm doing, I'm trying to maintain a low level of body fat, it's been shown to be extremely effective. And it's not only from the fact that you're burning calories and you're increasing energy expenditure, but you're also increasing satiety and you're increasing your sensitivity to satiety signals by doing physical activity, which helps with managing hunger and regulating appetite. So this is these are multiple benefits that I'm getting from keeping that increased level of activity. And now keep in mind, like I said, I'm not doing crazy amounts of cardio. I'm just staying active. I'm staying on my feet. When I take calls, I might be, you know, I might go to the gym and, and just go on the treadmill. Or I might just go on a walk around the block and I'll do, you know, check-ins and stuff, or I'll take a call and I'll just move around around my house. So it's it's not something that's really increasing the amount of time I stay in the gym or really exacerbating any other aspects of my lifestyle. I'm just making sure that I'm not sitting at my desk all day like I I would have done in previous positions, you know, prior to 2015. I used to do that. I used to be in an office, you know, 8 to 10 hours a day, and I noticed that I was putting on, you know, first of all, I was gaining weight on a much lower level of calories. That's the first thing. And second of all, I was having issues with regulating my appetite especially in a post-dieting scenario because I was so sedentary. So that's that's the first key principle.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, th- that's a good one. And and also, uh, there's uh, research showing that um, at least a moderate level of physical activity is actually helpful in uh, controlling your appetite as well. So more sedentary people and very, very highly active people are both hungrier than reasonably active people basically so there is kind of this um, j-shaped curve of uh, how physical activity and appetite regulation correlate uh, personally for myself i found um, for the moment ten thousand steps being kind of a nice sweet spot Fifteen thousand. the issue is exactly what you're outlining for myself is that that actually requires me to go for a couple of walks during the day and it's funny but i just don't love the neighborhood where i'm living at at the moment and i just don't like walking around here uh, mainly because the neighborhood is full of these completely moronic uh, rabbit dogs that are barking at me from everywhere. So I just go on that walk and I come back pissed off. So uh, I would honestly rather just be on a treadmill. So, um, but yeah, man, that's uh, that, that's a great tip. So um, have you found that uh, 15,000 step mark to be like a, a realistic target for, for many of your clients?
1: So it definitely depends. I, I want to be... Uh transparent and upfront it really depends on where they're coming from so for instance i was already attaining a good amount of knee or steps I, i've been tracking steps since 2014. Um, so I've already been obtaining a pretty steady level of need, even back then. At that point, I was working in an office uh, capacity. And so my knee my levels or my step count was lower. I want to say probably seven to 8,000 steps per day. But with all my clients, it's, it's person dependent. So it's not like I'm saying everyone has to be 15,000 steps a day because Brandon does 15,000 steps a day. But I try to make sure that um, they are at a higher level of energy flux than they, they usually would be. So if someone comes to me, and it's their first time tracking steps or they've done it previously. And they're someone that lives an extremely sedentary lifestyle. And they do say 2000 steps a day. I'm trying to slowly titrate that up. So, you know, it's not that that's the ideal level. I do like getting between um, 8,500 and 10,000 steps a day for all clients. And the reason that is, is because there's actually, it was actually recent research, 2020, uh, a study came out um, by Burton et al actually. And they looked at how daily step count influences the metabolic response we have to meals. So that was kind of what I was saying about post-meal walks and glycemic control. And the study looked at three groups. And um, the first was a low um, step count group. And then there was a limited step count group and then a normal step count group, which we would consider like a little bit high. And I believe it was 2,500 steps in the low group, 5,000 steps in the moderate group, and then 8,500 steps in the high group. And they showed that... When they titrated these groups around, meaning that they put them in different groups and they did a washout period, that the groups that when they were in 2,500 or 5,000 steps per day, they had a, they had higher triglyceride levels and then less fat oxidation ability, as well as less glycemic control. So their fasting gl- blood glucose levels were higher as compared to when they got 8,500 steps per day. So it shows, and that was they did a washout period and then they just had those pe- these participants followed that for two days so just two days of more sedentary activity either at 2500 or 5,000 steps per day showed you know noticeable detriments to health markers and to glycemic control and to postprandial metabolism of, of nutrients. So I always try to hit 8,500 steps per day, but like I said, if someone comes at 2,000, I'm aiming, hey, let's get to five or 6,000 and let's slowly titrate them up. Now I have other clients that really do stay very lean year round, and I find that the average client is between 13,000 and 15,000 steps per day, but I do wanna note that I train a lot of other coaches, I train a lot of other um, you know, fitness professionals as well. So a lot of my clients sell, or a good percentage of my clients sell, they're trainers themselves, or they're professional athletes, or they're coaches themselves, so they they make their own schedule where they have the time to allocate. So I wouldn't expect 15,000 steps a day from my work, you know, busy working professionals. I'm just trying to get them to, you know, increase to a point at which they're seeing better benefits, they're able to eat more food. I'm seeing like I said I track blood glucose, I track blood pressure, I track resting heart rate, and those are all things that are improved through higher physical activity levels. And so when I'm seeing, I'm noticing or I'm tracking that on a day, or weekly basis on their check-ins, I'm noticing improvements in that and I'm also noticing improvements in body composition and I'm slowly being able to titrate up their food after a dieting phase. Awesome.
0: Sounds good. Yeah. One thing I said to a couple of my clients that are now or in home office due to COVID and um, I mean a lot of them will not even go over like 1,500 steps a day. And um, they have a hard time like going for walks during the day. Many of them have long work hours and are just sitting in front of the computer. One thing I suggested to them is look, um, maybe think investing into a treadmill for home. You know, like you you, you can get a decent one for like three, 400 bucks. It's It's not going to be the most amazing treadmill, but you don't need one. And I actually did for myself and right now there are curfews here and everything and I'm doing my home workouts, and what I do is I do a set, then I step on the treadmill for three minutes, and then do another set, and this is how an hour-long workout goes by, and sometimes I literally don't leave the house, and I still get in 10,000 steps that way, so uh, that that can be really helpful, uh, just as a side note. Cool, man, so uh, yeah, what, what what's your next uh, magic? Principle.
1: Okay. So the second thing I'm going to touch on nutrition and uh, I do what's what I call an undulating calorie cycle. So over the years, i found that calorie cycling between my training and non-training days to be the best way to not only stay lean, but to fuel my training and manage appetite. So personally, I've always used, or I don't want to say always, but for the last you know, couple years, I've successfully used a variation of the five, two diet, but it's changed based on my goals. So essentially 5-2 diet just undulating between you know two different diet days but if i'm actively pushing to get leaner i'll use a 5-2 diet approach where i'll diet for five days in a deficit and then i'll utilize a two back-to-back day refeed at around maintenance or slightly above so that's the typical you know what bill campbell uh, you know you know studied recently uh the two back-to-back day uh refeeds i always do them on the weekend if you know i'm in america but there's there's research in America based on our, our population that we're more predisposed to eating you know more on weekends. So I kind of, you know, I do that with both myself and my clients. It allows them to have a little bit looser of and more flexible of an eating, you know, schedule in terms of their intake on those weekends. We're able to refuel glycogen, have better training sessions, you know, maybe a little bit, I'll increase volume on those days. And it allows us to, you know, during the week, you know, I, I call people a lot of times, they're weekday dieters, you know, people that are unsuccessful. They diet Monday through Friday and then the weekend, it, you know they go off the rails well what i really try to do is i'm trying to play into my clients physiology but also their psychology so i know that if they're more predisposed to overeating on weekends especially especially certain clients that i've seen that with i'll make sure that i'm able to raise those calories by inducing a greater deficit during the week and then we can you know have a bigger buffer room on those weekends so that's something that's worked really successfully for me as well as for my clients now the rest of the year when i'm just maintaining this lower level of body fat which i find maintainable i'll use a five two diet structure but I'll be five days above maintenance calories. And then on my two days off, which are my two off days from training, I'll go into a deficit. And I refer to this as a calorie cycle as my, on my training days, I'm using a higher carb and lower fat approach. Whereas on my off days from training, I'm using a lower carb and moderate fat approach, which allows me to stay metabolically flexible. So I could, you know, switch between fuel substrates, both between carbs and fats. And it also just allows me to change my palate a little bit in terms of what I'm eating, um, you know, my satiety index and all those type of things. And then in other phases, so these are all goal dependent. So like I said, in fat loss, it's a 5-2 diet, you know, five days in a deficit, two days at maintenance. In a maintenance phase, it's five days above maintenance, two days in a deficit, which equal me out to maintenance calories. And then in other phases, I'm really trying to get lean. I'll go into a phase where I'll utilize those two off days, which are generally, you know, lower carb and, and higher fat. And I'll actually go into a protein sparing modified fast, um, which I do alongside a lot of times in intermittent fast. So I'll fast for 16 hours and I'll just use an eight hour compressed eating window. And, you know, before anyone, you know, thinks that I'm doing it for autophagy or all these, you know, zealotrous um, benefits that don't happen in 16 hours. Really, honestly, the reason I'm doing it is because A, I'm limiting my intake. So my calories are much lower on those days. I'm trying to induce a greater deficit. And so being able to compress it in a smaller eating window, I find that A, I'm less hungry. B, I'm able to utilize larger meals, larger protein feedings within that, which increases satiety. And on those days, I'm literally just using, you know, high protein, you know, lean protein sources. I'm using high amounts of fibrous vegetables, and I'm using essential fatty acids and i've also found that utilizing you know the fasting period and then those protein sparing modified fast days allows me to kind of reset my digestion especially if i've been at like a maintenance phase where i'm pushing calories higher on those training days i'm able to reset things and also i found that it's really good for my cognition so if i have really busy work days generally my two days off from training are during the week when i have my largest amount of meetings or client check-ins so it allows me to extend that fasting window where i just spend my entire morning i'm a very early riser so i'm up at like 4am i won't i won't eat my first meal till noon and i'll eat between a window of you know 12 to 8 And so I'm able to be super productive within that, you know, 4 a.m. to to 12 p.m. before I eat my first meal. So that's just something that I found works well for me. The protein sparing modified fast that goes back to like the Lyle days. Um, You know, I utilize that even, you know, in high school, I utilize some of that in terms of, you know, his philosophies. And I've I've showed or I saw that it managed appetite really well and also enhanced my cognition and productivity on the days that I utilize that. And that's just something that's personally worked for me. And then the other thing that I do is I work out or i i'm up very early in the morning like i said and i also train early in the morning because it's the only time that i can train uninterrupted so i generally train between 6 and 8 a.m and so i tend to eat the majority of my calories and especially my most nutrient-dense meals early in the day on the days that i train so we've also seen through research that you're most insulin sensitive in the morning according to the research on like chrononutrition, you should eat more of your food you know early in the day if you can do that and now for me that works well works well and it fits into my schedule. So I utilize that. And then I also, like I said, I track my facet and postprandial blood glucose daily. And I've actually found that when I switched to utilizing larger meals early in the day, say like my, my higher carbs would be in my peri workout scenario. So pre and post, my, not only was my fasted glucose better than utilizing, you know, larger meals towards the nighttime, but also my postprandial glucose was also better. So I'm seeing both from a, a, you know, personal perspective in terms of how my gym performance is i'm seeing better results there but i'm also shown you know seeing in my blood work my facet you know glucose or my facet insulin levels my hemoglobin a1c i'm seeing improvements by utilizing that approach so that's something that's worked really well for me but i know for a lot of other people if you don't train early you know save your calories if especially if you're trying to maintain leanness save your carbs and and your most calorically dense you know meals around your your workout scenario so if that's not till midday you know save it till then or if that's not until evening, it's not going to make a huge difference but for me this is something that's worked really well
0: that's uh that's super interesting so i have um i have a couple of follow-ups one is that's actually really funny you mentioned how you cycle calories because that's something that i started doing since the the end of my last cut so now it finished like roughly a month ago is i do one or two protein sparing modified fasts a week and it's Kind of like the reverse refeed in a way. So instead of spiking your calories one or two times a week, you're spiking or you're basically eating high calories most of the time and are only going lower one or two days a week. And um, so far, it seems to be working pretty well. And you don't have that kind of the thing that you talked about with Dave McConey, that uh, when people are using the opposite approach as kind of a long-term strategy, so they are eating lower calories most of the time and then. Then they have one or two days when they are eating like really high calories, then it just makes the entire week seem so much worse when you're on those lower calories and you're just looking forward to those refeeds all the time. So, but And from what I've gathered, that's sort of been like your experience as well with yourself and working with others.
1: Absolutely. So I just, first of all, we have to think from an evolutionary perspective. We have what's called optimal foraging strategy. So we want the most amount of calories per gram. But if we think about it, even from an evolutionary perspective, the most nutrient or the most calorically dense thing we could get our hands on back in those days was honey, which is 3.4 grams per calories per gram. If we look at like the most popular, so I work in the supplement industry, most popular protein bars, which are quote unquote healthy and low calorie are over four calories per gram. So right now in our modern food environment, we're being subjected to quote unquote healthy foods that are more calorically dense than the most calorically dense food that we could ever get in nature evolutionarily. So in my perspective, we need to limit the amount of hedonistic action that we partake in. And I see that to be a Big thing. And that's why I do these two day back to back refeeds, but they're controlled and they're utilized through a higher carb approach. So my, it's not that I give my clients cheat meals. I actually don't even use, I'm very into diet psychology, as you had hit on previously. I don't use the word cheat. I don't use the word snack. I don't use anything that could have an emotion tied to food. I, I don't, I want to separate those things. Food is not only fuel, it does have a component of our culture, but we can't just look at food as something that we emotionally rely on. And when I had spoken to Dave, he had just finished a pretty substantial, um, uh, weight loss phase. He had just done a, a pretty, probably his most drastic fat loss phase in the last you know, few years. And he had done a period where he did, I believe between a thousand and 1200 calories. And he found himself really in that post diet period to be really giving into cravings where he was undulating, you know, very substantially. So he would have 2000 calorie days and then an 8,000 calorie day, you know, on his, on his quote unquote cheat day or free meal day or whatever you want to call it. And I just see that to be, First of all, that's, you know, Dave knows what he's doing, so he's very locked in and he's able to do that. But if we were to promote that, or I was to give that to the average client, they would engage in such hedonistic activity. And that's something I've done. So I'll tell you from my own personal perspective, I don't know if you know the Canadian coach, Scott Abel, but he used to be very prominent in the bodybuilding industry and he had something called the cycle diet. And it was something that I followed in, I believe 2013 and 2014. And essentially what you would do, it's kind of like Skip Hill's um, skip loading protocol, very similar. You would die at six days of the week and then you would have a quote unquote cheat meal window. So it would start at a low window, say six to eight hours and it would expend, extend out. And it got to the point where some guys were given 24 hours. And this wasn't my experience personally because I did not do this, but I had friends that worked with him as well that would start the night before and they would wait until midnight and then start because they wanted the full 24 hours. So now the only reason they were in a deficit during the week was so that they could, quote unquote, earn those extra calories. But here's the thing, this these are the detriments that I saw to that. They went too extreme, and I, I did it myself, so I'll, I'll speak from personal experience. We went too extreme in the deficit, six days per week, so our training performance was low, our energy was low in the gym and outside of the gym, our cognition was impacted. And then also, you know, our productivity, both in terms of our training capacity and also just our mental state, was so focused on, on that one off day that we, you know, we only felt good on one day per week, but then you overate to the point that you didn't feel good. So that's something that I always try to avoid. And even when I set up my refeeds with my clients, I do allow for increased flexibility and they are eating at maintenance or slightly above maintenance, but we have to think of it from a dieting perspective. What is maintenance in a deficit is not what was maintenance previous to that, because it continues to change as metabolic adaptation lowers your resting metabolic rate and all the other components of the energy expenditure. So say that you started a diet on 3000 calories, and now you're dieting at 2000, you're deep into a diet. Your maintenance might be 2700 or 2600 it's yes, it's a 600 calorie bump on those two, you know, back to back day refeed days, but that's coming predominantly just from carbohydrates. I'm trying to restore muscle glycogen because you're flat. I'm trying to get a, a bump in training performance. Uh, obviously, I'm trying to get you to feel better physiologically as well as most, most mostly psychologically but really what can you do with 600 calories that's 150 grams of carbs so it's not allocating for burgers and fries and co- cookies and cakes and all these hyper foods which just drive that dopamine response and that's what I'm always trying to get through especially with my clientele listen if you want to sustainably live a lean lifestyle you need to be able to put things in place where it's not that you never had those things, but you have to realize what type of individual you are. I'll tell you personally, I am an abstainer. I did not do well when I had those things in my diet. I wasn't able to just eat one cookie. I would eat the whole goddamn thing. So I know personally that I need to abstain. So an abstainer is someone that if you know something's a trigger food, you just avoid it. Now, if you're, you know, I have clients that are moderators. I have an IFBB pro that works with me. He's been on the Olympia level. He's a moderator like I've never seen. The kid could have one slice of cake or you know he could try a nibble of something and he'll literally tell me sometimes listen you know you gave me a free meal and i had a burger and fries and that's what i wanted but then my girlfriend you know she had a dessert and i wanted to try it and it looked great and i had one bite or, or i got a dessert and i had one bite and i just really didn't enjoy it so I, I threw it out you know he'll pay the money on the thing but he won't eat it whereas the average person and the per, you know the average people that i work with just for the hell of it, they would just keep eating it. And if they didn't enjoy that slice of cake, they would order another one to make up for it. You know what I mean? So it's, I'm I'm really trying to reset people's psychology because I've been there and I've made those mistakes. And then I, I've seen that the whole deficit that I worked all Monday through Saturday for was erased on one day of overindulging.
0: Yeah. This whole, the, the dieting psychology component is, is just so fascinating. Um, it's funny you mentioned those, um, like 8,000 calorie days, uh, That Dave was having uh, occasionally or yeah, he was he was trialing that strategy that he would have like a a really high calorie day, then two, three low calorie days, then a high calorie day again. And it just didn't work for him because uh, eventually because he realized that it was just not treating his mindset very well. Um, but just today, someone sent me a screenshot, uh, a friend of mine, of his diet log, and it showed like average calories during the week, and it was something normal. And then I saw this huge spike on one day, and I zoomed in, and I saw that it was like 8,000 calories. And I asked him, like, so when he had those 8,000 calories, like, did you enjoy like that whole thing, like until the last bite, or was the last like 2,000 calories of that? like just actually suffering, like you were actually uncomfortable, but you just kept eating anyway. And it's like he was like, yeah, yeah, it was like that. And like, that's so fascinating because I've done that a bunch of times as well. And it's just like, why do people do that? Like, why do we do that? Like, what's the, what's the driving mechanism behind that? Is it just the feeling of, okay, this is my last chance to like have all these fun foods because from tomorrow onwards, I'm back being strict again. Uh, it's just so fascinating to me. But um, yeah, for people who have those tendencies, uh, probably being an abstainer for one might be a better approach. Because if you were a really good moderator, then probably you would have found out already and you wouldn't have had those 8,000 calorie days just kind of randomly slipping in. And then also maybe the, you know, once a day refeed approach, we just might want to be a bit more cautious with that approach with those people. Cause um, I'm sure you've seen that in your coaching practice with some people, it can kind of get out of hand sometimes. Yeah. You know,
1: the hyperpalatable foods. So those that are, you know, combinations of sugar, starch, fat, salt, those are things that kind of concern me, especially when I know that someone has, you know, I've had a lot of people come to me because I did deal with an eating disorder with not with disordered eating habits. They don't have, they're not, Clinically diagnosed as having eating disorders, because if so, I would have to refer them out. And I have done that. But people that have, you know, competed and done the weekend binges after a show, or that they just have a bad relationship with food. And I really try to, the first thing, I'm, I'm always trying to add things into their plan and then take some things away. So it's almost, I'm trying to. I'm all about building better habits and behavior modification. One of the biggest things that I avoid, especially in that initial phase with a client, I say, listen, we're going to abstain from certain food sources, especially those that hit the bliss point of food. So you know, the bliss point of food is essentially like the optimal ratio of sugar, fat, salt, that stimulate the reward center in the brain. And what a lot of people don't realize is that there are so many food companies out there, lucrative food companies that employ these brilliant food scientists to engineer and create foods that elicit that perfect bliss point, which activates are you know that reward pathway within our brain and it spikes dopamine production resulting in us craving more and more of these like highly playable processed like Franken foods. And these hyperplatable food sources are so easy to overconsume. They taste great, but they're also designed to dysregulate our appetite, increase cravings, and boost our drive and motivation to consume these foods because that's what dopamine is. A lot of people think of dopamine as like this pleasure signal, but it's more of a drive and motivating, it's driving you towards things. So, you know, these companies like hook us in to consuming these products you know by designing things that have like the perfect combination of taste and texture and crunch and aroma and it just drives us in and so i find that a lot of people do have a really hard time moderating those things and so that's where i'm looking towards adding in more whole foods and even when i do a refeed i'm making sure it's mostly through whole foods i'm using the protein leveraging theory you know making sure they have an optimal amount of protein because the body is going to continue to drive you to eat until you get enough protein so if you're eating doritos you know, you're not going to stop until you get to the the amount that, you know, you get enough protein or, you know, there's all these mechanisms in the brain that are reinforcing these habits, which you really need to avoid. And so I take a much different approach from a diet psychology perspective, but also from like a like even how I, I kind of compose my my nutrition and, and my diet regimens where I'm trying to manage like one of the number one things that I do for myself and my clients is managed appetite and actually that leads me into my third point for how i stay leaner is high protein intake So I always keep my my protein high and I do it for a number of reasons. First of all, we know protein is the macronutrient which provides the highest satiety effect in isolation. So it helps to suppress both my appetite and manage my hunger. And then it also has the highest thermic effect of feeding at around 20 to 30%, which impacts the energy outside of the equation. So one thing I always try to do, I'm I'm trying, I do what's called, I'm pulling the nutritional levers with my clients or the levers that are most easily accessible. So a couple of those levers are I'm trying to get daily movement in i'm trying to increase the thermic effect of feeding because we see that the average person from their t- total daily energy expenditure they they're at about 10% of the calories that they burn per day comes from the thermic effect of food but however if you go to highly processed foods you actually get a lower thermic effect so it takes less it costs less energy to metabolize and digest those nutrients however if i've seen studies where you just raise protein from 10 or 15% to 30% of the diet and the thermic effect for a, daily, a total daily energy expenditure goes up to 15%. So we just got a 5% bump, you know, right then and there. And that's free, you know what I mean? It's, it's food you're taking in, you know, if say you were eating 3000 calories, just, you know, changing the macronutrient composition is something that we can easily leverage just to get more calories out of the system. So for me, you know, I generally shoot for between, you know, 2.4 to 3.1 kilograms, which, you know, doing the conversion real quick, I believe it's 1.1 to 1.4 grams for us, you know, per pound for us Americans. And I do that to help maintain and preserve muscle while dieting. And also those numbers have been shown to be more beneficial for those that are the leaner you are and then more training experience you have so that's something that actually i saw in a study back in like 2014 from eric helms he did a study on um on physique athletes and showed that having a protein a higher protein intake was actually more beneficial especially in terms of a deficit but also the more experience you were with training and then also when you were in a leaner state. So that's something staying at the, the body fat percentage that I'm at, I'm always shooting between 1.1 and 1.4 grams per pound. And I do that with most of my clients because I want to leverage that thermic effect. I want to leverage that that um, hunger modulation. I want to make sure that they're satiated and they're full. And there's so many other benefits that come along with protein. So if I have someone and they, they have a certain amount of calories per day, I'm trying to make sure that they're getting a sufficient amount of protein and I'm building the diet around, you know, high you know, amounts of quality lean protein sources, vegetables, you know, fruits and things that are fibrous and that have a higher thermic effect so that they're satiated and then filling the rest with, you know, the rest of their calories with the energy substrates, whether that come from
0: carbs or fats. Yeah. The, the protein is an interesting one. Um, cause on the one hand, uh, when the satiety or satiating effect of protein comes up, I, I sometimes push back and I say like, well, protein in isolation as a macronutrient might be more satiating but at the same time we're eating foods um, not just macronutrients so if you look at a chicken breast for 100 calories and you look at 100 calories worth of cucumbers like for the the cucumber is going to be you know so much more or yeah so much more voluminous Uh, you get to eat so much more food so I would be inclined to say that just period vegetables or the most satiating foods on the planet that we have pretty much. Um, but it's interesting because I, so I found that, for example, I have a sweet spot with protein. So there is like the um, like the minimum recommendation for physique athletes or athletes or just people into lifting in general, which is, you know, approximately two grams per kilo, you know, 1.8 grams uh, per kilo or 0.8 grams per pound. Um, I found that if I eat just that amount, then it's almost like I'm craving more protein. And if I go a little bit higher than that, then um, then then it's just fine. So for me, that would be a little bit over two grams per kilo. Um, and, I, and I think a lot of people have that sweet spot. So, um, but yeah, I mean, definitely keep protein nice and high. And then, other than that, I would just say make sure that you have plenty of uh, fibrous, uh, voluminous, uh, filling stuff in your diet as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Able well, I agree 100%. That's why I specifically said protein in isolation has been shown to have the highest satiety effect. But yeah, you're 100% right. When we talk about vegetables, we're talking about volumetrics. So we have to realize that we have stretch receptors in our intestines that tell our brain when we're full. So this signal is like sent to the brain in response to the food volume we're eating, which if we look at it comparatively, say we looked at something like cucumbers in your example, or another one I love to put on planes is strawberries, because strawberries, you can get so many, so much amount, so much food volume for a low amount of calories, especially if you used it as like the main carb source in a particular meal. And so, I find that to be, that's why I always base most of my dieting meals for both myself as well as for my clients. It's There's these key components. It's a high amount of protein. You know, We're making sure that we're hitting that leucine threshold. We're stimulating muscle protein synthesis. We're lowering muscle protein breakdown, but then we're building out the rest of the diet where I'm making sure they have the proper micronutrients through a serving of vegetables, a serving of Uh, fruit, at least for me personally, I go to six to nine servings of vegetables per day and four to six servings of fruits. And that's just how I base my diet. And then I'll fill in the rest of the calories that I have allotted to me during whatever phase I'm in, with actual direct carb sources, like your rice, like your cream of rice, um, sweet potato, things of that sort. But I'm always making sure I have my key principles. Those are kind of like my fundamentals to building a diet, just to make sure that from a satiety aspect, from a macronutrient perspective, and then also from a micronutrient perspective, everything is, is, I've checked all the boxes, but also from a volumetrics perspective, just meaning that foods with higher volume, they, they increase, you know, obviously, um, They expand our intestines and our stomach and they also hit on those stretch receptors, which indicate to the brain, Hey, listen, we're done eating. We're, you know, we're, we're satiated, which is that's independent of calories. So it's, it's really important to, that's another nutritional lever that I pull, you know, fibrous, carbs, fibrous, vegetables, you know, things that have higher volume, lettuce, salads, you know, I always make sure I have a big salad every single day, especially in a meal that has less calories, or especially on those days that I'm utilizing a protein sparing modified fast, I'll do, you know, two larger salads throughout that day so that yes, I'm eating lower but I'm not miserable in the process. And that's what I really try to get home to people. The reason I utilize these principles and I utilize a higher energy flux and I utilize higher protein intake and I undulate my calories is because I want to make this as sustainable as possible. If I was to do it, you know, I've tried if it fits your macros and I've tried flexible dieting, I've tried fitting in these quote unquote fun foods. And first of all, they've just driven me to eat more and, you know, veer off the diet. Or if I had been able to sustain the calorie allotment that I had for myself or maintain a deficit, I've been miserable in the process because, You know, that's when dieting is sucked because I'm hungry, because I have low energy, because I'm craving more foods. Like, Like I said, the two biggest reasons that people fall off or fail in a diet besides consistency and lack of adherence are due to energy issues and due to black you know or increase hunger so if i can mitigate that for both myself and my clients i've always seen that to yield better results and better ability to stay consistent and stick to the program
0: awesome uh actually may i just track back to one of your earlier uh principles that you shared because there was one question i wanted to ask and then just completely forgot um would you mind just giving like a, a really quick rundown of like a an example of like a typical day of eating in your life like on a typical day like uh like what time do you wake up then what time is meal one meal two meal three just because i'm curious because you mentioned that you eat more in the beginning of the day and then how roughly those meals look like like what types of foods and stuff like that absolutely
1: so uh, generally i'm up now i live a, a much different lifestyle than most so keep that in mind i'm up generally between 3 30 and 4 a.m every morning um i have a block in my early morning i do time blocking which is a cal newport type of thing um if you're familiar with him And so uh, I do two hours of of what I consider deep personal work. So this is a little bit different than than Cal Newport's philosophy of deep work. But deep personal work is for the first two hours of my day, I devote just towards my own self-development. So the first hour of my day, I don't answer any text messages, no emails, nothing. I do nothing responsive or reactive, meaning I don't look at any notifications or anything. And that's why I get up so early. So essentially what I do is the night before I do a brain dump. So I'm listing all the things I have to do for the morning or for the day ahead. And I also pick out whether it be a podcast, a seminar, you know, I'm engaged in a lot of mentorships. So I'll have like online webinars and I'll set it on my phone or on my laptop the night before. So when I wake up, my morning routine, I I take my biometrics or, you know, my biofeedback markers. That's my resting heart rate, my blood glucose and my resting heart rate or my blood pressure immediately upon waking. So I log those into uh, Google Sheets. I track my weight. And then you know I'll down you know a liter of water with some various supplements, um, you know lemon juice and, and glutamine and all these different things, and then I'll get to the computer or I'll, I'll get my phone on and I'll be playing that pod you know podcast or the webinar, and just for that first hour I'm doing that, and then also on a morning walk like I had mentioned previously. Once I'm done, I've gotten back. I've done at least an hour of of personal education. So that's my my devotement to myself to educate myself and I want to fill my brain before anything else gets in there with something that's promoting and positively helping me become more intelligent and more developed human being in, in an area that I want to learn. So every week I pick a different subject and a lot of times that's how a lot of my content comes about. So, yes, it comes about through questions that I get, but I'll be jogging, I'm, I'm very into active listening. So I'm, I'm doing notes and I'm, I'm thinking about things and I'm, I'm logging different you know things, the critical thoughts that I get during that period. And then generally, my first meal is at around 5, 5.30, depending on how long of a walk I did. Uh, First meal will be something extremely easily digestible. So keep in mind, I get into the gym around 6 a.m. So I want something that is in and out. So it's going to be a whey protein isolate or a hydrolyzed protein, uh, generally 50 grams of protein from that. Uh, one of those two sources i'll use mct uh, oil or mct powder is actually my preference with a high c8 content so just a really high quality um, mct which burns like pretty much like glucose and then i'll utilize something like uh, cream of rice so it's easily digestible i just you know it's something i could throw down in five minutes i already have it prepared the night before i make it into like this uh i have a little bit of a process with my cream of rice where it's kind of like a dessert that i put in the in the freezer so it's something i look forward to it's my first meal of the day i i down that, I start working on some client work while it's digesting. I get to the gym around 6 a.m. and I train between 6 and 8 a.m. During that time period, you know, I'm, I come from the supplement industry, so I am a big proponent of supplements. I've seen very... Various benefits for myself and others, but I always utilize intra-workout nutrition. So I'm I'm generally ranging between 25 to even 100 grams of some high molecular weight carbohydrate, depending on what phase of training I'm in, uh, how glycolytic, meaning how high volume of training I'm utilize, I'm you uh, doing, or how long my sessions are. If I'm doing a normal hypertrophy session, say 20 sets, you know, and I'm generally training um, multiple body parts in a session. I, I generally train most body parts two to three days per week, so a higher frequency. Uh, I'll utilize 25 to 50 grams of like a highly branched cyclic dextrin, uh, some essential amino acids in there, uh, some some electrolytes, like an electrolyte powder, some sodium. Um, and then right after that, I'll usually, you know, take some magnesium. Once I'm done with my training, I'm trying to turn on parasympathetic recovery. So I actually take an hour after my workout and I don't eat for that full hour. I really want to get into a parasympathetic nervous system state and that's to promote, you know, When we're training, we're turning on our sympathetic nervous system. So we're in a fight or flight state. That is the least optimal place. Think about it. Your blood is being shunted from your stomach to your extremities because that's a survival response. So after that period, I find myself that I've taken stimulants in the morning. I've taken a pre-workout or a fat burner or something like that, some caffeine to get myself a little bit more jazzed up for that session. I want to make sure A, that I'm, I'm in a calmer mood. I'm, you know, coming back down, I'm getting into that parasympathetic state that promotes rest and and recovery. And then I go on to my largest meal a day. And depending on what phase of my training I'm in, that meal could be anywhere from 120 grams of carbs to I've done up to 300 grams of carbs in that post-workout meal. And generally that's a lean protein source like chicken or turkey. I'm utilizing a large amount of, uh, you know, a starchy carb, something like a, or, you know, um, a quick acting carb, like, jasmine rice, something that sits really easily digested with me, I've went up to four or five cups of rice, to be honest with you. So when I push calories, I mean, I really do it, but I utilize a combination of glucose and fructose to take advantage of multiple uh, glute Uh, glucose translocators. So we're utilizing GLUT4, you know, through exercise that's going to upregulate glucose absorption from, you know, glucose-based carbs like uh, jasmine rice. And then I'm using GLUT5 for fructose. So I'm utilizing, you know, maybe some jasmine rice or cream of rice, something easily digestible. And then I'm doing a large serving, you know, we're talking 250 to 300 grams of, say, frozen fruit or berries or utilize usually Usually, I'll do a combination of like pineapple for the bromelain for the digestive enzymes and I'll do berries as well. And then I also utilize um, in that meal, in the rice itself, I'll put some uh, chicken bone broth, which both has glycine, you know, it's it got some uh, components of the collagen protein, but I find that it's really it really helps with my gastrointestinal health. And so that's my largest meal of the day. So like I said, pre, intra and post are my largest carb feedings. And then I start lowering calories from then on. So I'll probably eat that meal around nine or ten a.m. depending on what time I get back from the gym, what my work schedule is like. But I like I said, I always take at least an hour after that post workout or that post workout period to just let my my system get, you know, back into check, calm down, I'll take a shower, all that type of stuff. And then the rest of the day it's it's really just, you know, my third meal of the day, which I call my post post workout meal, will be another serving of carbs. It'll be something like yeah, ground turkey. or I, I rotate between protein sources, so if I utilize chicken in my post-workout meal, I'll utilize ground turkey in my next meal, and I just like you know going in between different protein sources and and varying them, so I have different amino acid profiles. So right now, meal three is seven ounces of lean ground turkey because I utilize seven ounces of chick, uh, grilled chicken breast in my post-workout meal, and then with meal three, it'll be seven ounces of ground turkey. You know, two cups of jasmine rice. I'll utilize you know um, some baby carrots. Uh, I'll also have a serving of, you know, whether it be, it's, it's going to be some low FODMAP, um, uh, some type of low FODMAP veggie that could be cucumbers, that could be peppers. It's just something that's not going to irritate my gut. That's something I'm very cognizant of both of myself, my clients, I'm always trying to maintain good gastric health or good digestive health just to make sure everything's absorbing and being utilized properly and there's no excessive gas or inflammation or any of those type of irritants that come along with higher FODMAP foods and then from there I do um, I have a little bit of like a treat at night I do a protein ice cream which I utilize and I know I'm I'm sure that you're gonna be a fan of this because I have seen your videos on doing like the protein fluffs or utilizing like the casein protein so I utilize a 50-50 blend of whey isolate and casein protein, which is actually from a manufacturer that I used to work with. So it's a custom blend. And um, it's a chocolate peanut butter protein that is phenomenal. So I utilize that. I utilize a little bit of xanthan gum, some poire gum for the fiber. And then I, I make a protein ice cream out of that. And I also add in frozen fruit, so that'll generally be strawberries because there's so much bang for your buck, and it is a lower calorie meal. Like I'm look, I'm looking at in totality that meal being 50 grams of protein and about 30 grams of carbs, but it's so filling. It helps with me getting a dose of fructose before bed, which I find to be very beneficial because a lot of people actually they don't realize this is that first of all fructose is preferentially preferentially absorbed by you know hepatic glycogen goes to hepatic glycogen, meaning it goes to the liver. And a lot of times people wake up in the middle of the night and they think that they're waking up because they have to pee, but a lot of times it's because their their body is shooting out cortisol and your body's trying to liberate blood glucose. And one of the ways that you could and they're doing it from the liver, one way that you can mitigate that is utilizing fruit in your last meal and specifically fructose. So I always have my clients utilize some type of fruit. It's going to be a slower digesting, uh, carbohydrate source. It's something that's going to have fructose. So it's going to improve sleep quality, which is really important. I like a little bit of, you know, a carb bump before bed. So you get that serotonin production, which will eventually go downstream to melatonin and help with sweet sleep quality. And then, you know, I utilize like a fiber drink at night and that's it. So it's, it's really simple. And that's like the foundational base of my, my nutrition. And right now I'm eating about, um, 275 280 grams of protein uh 425 grams of carbohydrates and about 55 grams of fat Um, throughout the day, I'll utilize a lot of essential fatty acids. I'm big into getting my EPA and DHA through, um, high potency essential fatty acid supplements. I'll utilize krill oil. So I'm, I'm really trying to hit on those micronutrients and getting all my, my essential nutrients through both supplementation and through food, but that's the base of my diet. And from there, I just build on that. So if I'm going into a higher calorie phase, I might add in a little bit more um, more fruit to my meals, or I'll add in more carbohydrates. I'll have carbs at every meal, but I really do center the majority of my food consumption. So for instance, 70% of my carbohydrate intake is between my pre-inter and post-workout meals. And that, like I said, that's just, what's worked well for me from an energy perspective. I've noticed not only from my blood glucose levels, my facet insulin and, and other parameters on my blood work, but I've also noticed that when I eat heavier early on the day, my energy expenditure or the amount of, you know, activity that i I engage in and this has actually been shown through uh studies on breakfast people that eat breakfast as compared to people that don't i have like higher energy levels so i'm more active throughout the day so it's even easier to hit those neat levels um that you know those step counts that i'm trying to hit so that's just you know kind of my take to nutrition
0: sounds pretty good i'll i'll have to pick your brain um on that uh protein ice cream recipe afterwards because um the casein uh, fluffs that I made—they were amazing, but uh, then I became sick of them. So I cannot even look at my, the the <laughs> top of that casein protein anymore. Uh, but probably it was just a shitty brand that I was using to be honest, because it really tasted like shit. Uh, when once once my incre- I increased my calories, I realized that the only reason I liked it is because I was on low calories, <laughs> and then everything seemed good. Um, but besides that, um, so yeah, I think we arrived to. Point number four, right? All right. So this is
1: something that this is going to be applicable to every single person out there. And this is something that it's just like i say i don't have protocols you know often like clients or or potential new clients will ask me what's your protocol for this what's your fat loss protocol or you know we hear a lot of you know these these myths or these misconceptions in the industry where people are putting out a stubborn fat loss protocol or or, you know a a shredded in six protocol or this that and the other i'm all about principles which i could mold to the individual themselves but like i said this is something that could apply to everyone and i would advise this in a fat loss phase a maintenance phase or a, a gaining phase and the biggest thing for me is maintaining a consistent routine and meal pattern. So I keep my nutrition consistent in terms of my food sources pretty much 90% of the time. I do this for a variety of reasons though. It allows me to meal prep for my you know, my food for the week in advance, which enables me to be prepared with food wherever I go and no matter how busy I am. So one of the biggest feedbacks that I get from, especially my like busy working professionals the, like fitness and lifestyle clients that I had is that they were too busy or that they missed a the meal because they were unprepared or things like that so i don't allow myself for me to make that excuse i meal prep everything on a sunday i work 70 hours a week but i'm still able to get it in because that one day i devote towards meal prepping and i've made it so that i utilize consistent food sources which i can make in bulk first and foremost i i shop in bulk and then also it's something that it's easier than if i was utilizing flexible dieting approaches like i did previously where i'm making these different meals and i'm doing that macro tetris at night trying to add up things it's just it's too much of a headache and it it takes up too much time so this approach provides me with food sources I know digest well and and can allow me to perform intensely in the gym and then recovery adequately without any digestive discomfort. So that's huge for me. You know, I've suffered from digestive issues over the years, especially when I took different approaches where I utilize more highly processed foods or things that just didn't sit well with me. So I'm all about biofeedback for both myself and my clients and really managing and paying attention to the feedback that your body's giving you, especially when it comes to, you know, digestion and how you're responding to different food sources. So for instance, if I have someone following it and utilizing a new plan, I'll have them do like a food diary after each meal. So I want to know how their digestion is. I want to know how their bowel movements are. I want to know if they were bloated or gassy. And then I could specifically, you know, note, all right, this meal, it, it could be this potential food source. It could be something that's problematic, say oats or sweet potato, or it might be, you know, we're using a cruciferous vegetable like broccoli that has a higher FODMAP amount. So I'm trying to really isolate the variables. For both myself and for others and then the most important reason and probably the biggest reason i utilize this and, and maintain a consistent routine and meal pattern is because it limits decision fatigue which is one of the biggest limitations i see people suffering from when they do dieting or they diet with lots of flexibility and this applies to both dieters and people in maintenance phases because sometimes like we get a little bump in calories you might go from a deficit to 500 calories above back to maintenance and all of a sudden we have all this "quote unquote" food freedom but it kind of like it takes up so much of our mental capacity. So what I try to do and what I've found with my clients is I try to put as many things, including my nutrition on autopilot when I'm lean and look to reduce uncertainty by sticking with consistent food sources that I know are going to work well for me. And that I know I'm going to be able to easily prepare. So the biggest thing with this is there's, there's been research that has shown that the consistency of your diet and the food sources that make it up is a huge predictor or a high predictor for being successful with that diet. So we also have neuroscience research on the reward pathway in the brain that has shown that if you put someone on a healthy diet, the reward pathways in their brain don't light up as much after junk food, yet light up more after healthy food consumption like fruits and vegetables. So it's we're repatterning. Like I said, I'm all about, you know, improving habits, swapping out bad habits or less favorable habits with more optimal habits for someone's goals and behavior modification. So if I have someone that's a big sweet lover and that was their biggest thing. So for instance, the number one craving according to research is is chocolate. So that's Due to the fact that it sets off the dopamine receptors, it has, you know, it's salty, it's savory, it's sweet, you know, you're having a perfect combination of, you know, sugar, salt, and fat, but also it has theobromine, which also increases dopamine production, so it acts like a stimulant. So with that, if I have someone that they're really into chocolate, what I'll do is I might switch it out for dark chocolate. So now it's less palatable, has higher polyphenol content, or I'll use like cacao powder in in like a, a yogurt mix. So they're still getting like that, you know, that flavor that they enjoyed, but it's not as much of a hedonistic drive to overconsume. Whereas if they were eating a Hershey's bar every night, you know, one little block becomes an entire, you know, deluxe bar. And then also you know, little by little, I'm trying to swap out those sweet cravings with stuff like frozen uh, berries or frozen fruit. And I've noticed that a lot of times, you know, I've noticed this myself and then especially with clients that didn't have this type of approach, when I got them more consistently eating fruits, that's what they've craved. Like I've even had competitors that I keep fruit all the way in through the diet, but obviously it's titrated and it's lower to the amount that needs to be in a deficit. So I've had, you know, I had a, a pro client we went down to, um, the Chicago Pro this past fall and he competed. And the first thing that he wanted after, you wouldn't believe this, the first thing that he wanted after getting off stage, after a 16 week prep was a big bowl of fresh fruit. You know, that like, that just shows that we could, you know, change these habits and essentially make people tend to like healthier food the more more and more after they've consumed it over time. So I, I utilize that with the consistency aspect. And I also try to make sure that for myself, for others, that if we have something that we're truly craving, that we try to starve that craving as much as possible. Uh, we try to restrict from it because research actually does show the best way to decrease a craving is not to give into it. It's not eat a little bit and, and it'll go away. It's If you give into it, it's gonna reinforce that pathway and it's actually gonna become a craving longer and longer. So I've noticed that maintaining consistent food sources, a consistent routine with my meal pattern in terms of the sources I use, as well as the time. You know, There's a lot to be said about you know chronobiology. So just your circadian rhythm and how your body responds to food cues and times and light and so maintaining a consistent routine like i said i was able to outline you you know, without looking at anything, exactly what I do from morning to night, because I'm so consistent and understand that that's not applicable to everyone, but I have really found that when someone, you know, I have someone that owns a business or is a busy working professional or a stay at home mom, when they're able to just get into a little bit better of a routine that they find themselves not going as many hours without eating and then over consuming or not, you know, falling off a plan because they have a, they have their food sources prepared because it's easy. They're, they're not having to think about meal by meal and tracking their macros and all these different things, which are strategies i do use with clients but i also use you know a meal template to try to help them and say listen this is what i would advise you do have the macros there you can make food swaps but if you want to make it easier for yourself and see how following a plan can you know help you with adherence let's try it and if it doesn't work for you we could try another approach but i have found with the majority of my clientele and with me personally that being consistent following your routine and just putting things on autopilot you know we have enough decisions throughout the day in and of themselves so if we could just try to you know limit the amount of you know, excess energy, especially mental energy that we have to spend on our nutrition, it'll just lead to better results, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, man, there's, you said a lot of cool things in there. Uh, For one, I agree 100% that There's all this talk about flexible dieting, and I'm all for that. You should be flexible with your nutrition and especially with your attitude towards nutrition. There are no evil foods, no inherently fattening foods. It's important to be familiar with these concepts. But none of that is antithetical to the idea of meal planning and having a routine and structure. And those things are definitely most people's friend. Um, obviously, you can deviate from it here and there. And sometimes you will have to because life will throw some curveballs at you. But for the most part, if you just know each day what you will eat, um, that's honestly is just going to make things so much easier. And that's, that's the first thing I tell all my clients is, look, these are your caloric targets and macro targets, but I want you to create like a loose meal plan out of this for yourself, like I don't want you to go to my fitness pal each day and figure out what you're going to eat on that day, like ideally you only really have to track your calories like once a month, you know, like you do it and then you have your routine and then you're just kind of following that on autopilot and when there's a stall in your progress then we can make adjustments, so I love that and um, the other thing you said there is uh, yeah, often the best way to kill a craving is to starve it. So um, not only is it not workable for many people to just have a little bit of it and then it will go away, that works for some people, like you and I talked about uh, just a few minutes ago, like there are abstainers and moderators. Um, but one thing that definitely doesn't work is binging on that one thing for one day and hoping that that will kill the craving forever. <laughs> I, can, I can tell you from experience, all that does is it makes the craving even stronger. So uh, just one thing to keep in mind. And um, yeah, I guess I could just add like a fifth component to all of that is uh, mindfulness. So by that, I just mean distraction-free eating. So I don't know if this is something that you you use yourself, uh, but I just found that for me, um, honestly, my kind of spontaneous caloric consumption can go up by like a thousand calories if I'm eating in front of a screen or like of any kind, like or even listening to podcasts, like I just passively eat more. Or if I'm tracking my numbers down, then a given number of calories is not going to satiate me quite as much. So I don't know if this is something that you incorporate yourself.
1: No, absolutely. So not only eating mindfully, because a lot of times I feel like that's tied to intuitive eating. And obviously there's, we could go on to a huge rant on intuitive eating, how people misuse it in today's, you know, we have intuitive fasting and all these different, you know, fads and things, but really what I try to center on, and I do agree with you on, on eating intuitively, but more of what I center on is the concept of modifying your food and eating environment. So what I mean by that is yes, I'm eating mindfully, but I'm also paying attention to different cues. So what I really try to come across to, you know, clients, and then also with myself is eating slowly. Because we've seen that slower eating rates leads to a reduction in food intake you know so chewing your food first of all that's going to help with digestion that's going to help increase satiety and manage hunger i want my clients to eat mindfully i want them to be with their food you know like i said previous in the podcast you are who you surround yourself with the media all these different things you know in other countries i know in, in the uk i have a lot of clients out there there was a law that they could not have um, advertisements or commercials uh for like hyper palatable foods like your doritos or whatever brands that they have out there earlier than 9 p.m. because it would you know there's an obesity epidemic but especially in children we're seeing you know sky high obesity rates with children and it's because we have all these food cues so imagine if you're the average american you know average person in general and you're eating you know mindlessly and you're watching television you're watching youtube you know you're seeing these commercials now all of a sudden your food is less you know enjoyable you're eating quicker which is increasing the amount of calories you take in without even noticing so you're doing it subconsciously and not getting that satiety you know effect and you know, you're not having as good of an experience with your food itself. So it's almost like it came and gone. And I'm sure that we've all done that. We've eaten when we're driving or we're eating when we're watching something or we're really into the movie itself. Or the biggest example, I I tell this to my clients all the time is, um, when was a time that you've eaten the most popcorn? You know what i mean it's generally when you're at the movies you know you get that huge like extra large bag and all of a sudden it's gone and it's because you ate mindlessly if you were to sit down and eat that and bring that deluxe you know um bag of popcorn to your house and you ate in front of you know on your you know in your kitchen with your family and you were engaged in conversation you were eating slow and you were going say 20 bites per per chew or 20 chews per bite you would never eat that much popcorn but because you're enthralled in this you know in some type of entertainment, you're getting distracted, and you're over consuming calories. So that's, that's a huge thing. So I try to make sure that people aren't watching Netflix or getting distracted. Um, especially when they're, you know, they're trying to lose fat because we, there's been multiple studies that have shown that, uh, when you're eating while engaged in other activities saying like eating, you know, watching TV, you're more likely to not only consume more food, but also have less, um you're less strict in your food choices so you're more likely to get those ultra processed food or to give into a craving it's usually you know we'll have people say you know why did you give into a craving or what happened and it's well i got home from work it was a long day i was watching tv with my my wife and you know i had a a Tub of ice cream, so I'm always trying to get people to think a little bit more, and I also want them to realize that food isn't just fuel; it's it's a communal aspect. We are, you know, communal beings. So sit at home, sit at your dining room table, undistracted. Put your phone away. Engage with your family. Have a great family dinner. Put your fork down in between bites. That's one of the biggest like tactics that I utilize with people dieting. I say for every bite you take, just put your fork down. You know, take a sip of water. Increase satiety. Maybe we'll we'll protein load or or veggie load in between or before your meal. So for instance, let's start. Start with a nice large salad before your meal or start with, you know, consuming an adequate serving of protein prior to going on to your starch or to your fat serving. And so that you can increase that satiety, increase that uh, appetite management and really get the most out of your food. And we have to also realize that with eating mindfully, that time is a component, you know, in addition to volume. So generally the hypothalamus doesn't pick up on the fact that you've eaten or that you're full for 20 minutes after having started eating. So the the average person, I, I saw a study recently that the average person spends 31 minutes a day eating. So say that the average person eats, three to four times a day, we're averaging, you know, eight to 10 minutes per meal. So you could see that we haven't even eaten long enough to get that satiety effect, which is why so many people snack and over consume food. So I'm in complete agreement. I'm very into mindful eating and just really modifying that food environment, both in the context of making sure to remove things that trigger you from your household or from your office or from your, your living space, but also from the context of designing an environment that's conducive to your goals. So make sure that if you're eating the, the television is off, Or, you know, just like they say in the bedroom, you should only have, you know, she only sleep and have sex there. You should also, if you're in the, you're eating, it should just be in your dining room or in one section of your house where you're not distracted by other things that you could do in another time period.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's very well said. And also like for anybody who has any kind of issue with uh, like binging tendencies or something, or that has been an issue. uh, I've had lots of issues with that myself. And I can tell you, I never binged once while sitting at the table alone, focusing on my food and just really taking it in and being present in the moment. <laughs> like, no, it was always in front of my laptop or phone or whatever, or, or all of the above. So mindfulness and binge eating are pretty much two things that cannot coexist. So uh, kind of uh, kind of, just some addendum there. But, uh, but yeah, man, uh, Brendan, this was awesome. So you shared a lot of cool concepts. Um, and it was very comprehensive, so uh, I think we can pretty much wrap up here, because including uh, issues with recording and all of that stuff, we've been doing uh, this episode for almost two hours at this point, so yeah, man, uh, thank you for all the great information that you dropped, and I want to thank you for sharing everything that you've shared, and uh, yeah, I guess uh, just uh let people know where they can find out more about you, your work, uh, anything you're involved with, anything like that.
1: Absolutely. Abel, I appreciate you having me on. We've been uh, planning this for quite some time. So I'm I'm glad we were finally able to jump on the line and get this down. Um, for me, guys, you can find me at, the you know, best place to find me is on Instagram or on social media. It would be at Brandon DeCruz underscore. And then also, if you guys are looking for anything from just questions to even coaching, uh, you guys can find me at B Fitness at gmail.com. Like I mentioned in in the podcast earlier, if you guys ever have questions and it's something that it's in depth or anything, please reach out. Never hesitate. I'm the type of person I get up to hundred DMs a day, but I always try to get back to everyone. And like I mentioned with my content creation philosophy or approach, if I find that it's a really in-depth question and it's something that I don't have the time right there in the moment or it's something that's a repeated question. I really, my whole thing is, my, my goal in life is not only to help clients like personally, but to help educate and motivate people, especially towards a, a fitter and healthier lifestyle. Because when Abel and I first got into this, there weren't guys we could really go to. There were the boards, but we couldn't reach out to our favorite you know, fitness influencer or to our an evidence-based practitioner or a well-known coach or someone that had experience like him and I do. And so that's something I'm always trying to give back And I believe in the ripple effect of coaching and just content creation in and of itself that I can pass on the knowledge that I've gained and had to pay a lot of money for and spend a lot of experience and make a lot of mistakes in order to get. So I'm always willing to, you know, cover a topic. If you guys ever have stuff, that's honestly how I make my content at this point. So feel free to reach out to me. But yet again, Abel, thank you so much for your time, my friend. It's been a pleasure and I hope to do this again.